But I want to look back to uh, 2003. This is this is when 10-year-old Holly Jones was abducted, sexually assaulted, murdered, and then dismembered by a man that she came across walking her friend home from school. His name was Michael Breer. He's now serving a life sentence somewhere. But this was a case that rocked the city of Toronto. It was a case I covered as a, a younger reporter, and I will never forget the the heartbreak of her mom, Maria, and her father, just desperate to find her, just desperate to find their child. And of course, it wasn't just emotional. I mean, the city was rocked by fear. And then the unimaginable, you know, the finding of her body parts. Well, her story is going to be told in a couple of weeks in a series that is part of something called the Lake Erie Murders. And her story will be delivered by the detectives involved in that case. One of those detectives just happens to be a regular on this show, and this is how I met him. Dave Perry, joining me now. Good to have you, sir. Good to be back. Well, here we go, talking about a case. And we should mention your your, your partner at the time was uh, Detective uh, Al Como. Yes, that's so you, right. You work this investigation. Why Why is this being made into uh, a, a part of a series? Well, they're doing a series of... Um of murders that took place around the Great Lakes. And they're focusing on mostly on Lake Erie, but on the Canadian side of the border, obviously, the Holly Jones case, which in part was uh, connected to Lake Ontario. We made the yes. recovery of her body. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I guess they're looking into, you know, cases that were difficult for the community and difficult for the police to solve. And uh, and so last year they approached Al Como and I asked if we would participate. And we said we, we would participate gladly as long as, Holly's mother was uh, was also willing and and uh, would give permission for us to do so. So it's it's interesting. All these years later, it'll be 16 years this May, mm-hmm. and um, Holly's mother Maria um, said yes right away, and she said that she would like to participate and make sure that she did her part to keep Holly's memory alive. And, and that's really what this is all about. It's about keeping her memory alive. It's about honoring uh, Holly and, and her very short life. And it's about all the hardworking investigators for that particular case, the Holly Jones Task Force. And Al Coleman and I would be the first two to say we didn't solve this case alone. This was a, a massive team effort. And uh, so we, we're very proud to at least participate on that level and represent the team that put this together and helped uh, bring uh, Michael Breer to justice. Yeah. Well, you know, I, rem- I mean, it's hard to believe that much time has gone by because it seems like just yesterday when we were working around the clock chasing this story, um, you know, and, and cops were everywhere all over the city trying to, you know, calm fears and also trying to find this little girl who at that point um, was already dismembered. And as you say, parts of her body were found along uh, an area of Lake, on- uh, Lake Ontario. But going back to those days, I mean, you had to find this guy. And I remember, I remember at one part of the investigation, you know, you put out the call for um, voluntary DNA. It was really that moment that you got, it was the start of the break of this case. Yeah, true. I was based on the theory that we developed early in the investigation. And that really came out of all the evidence that uh, we recovered, in, in, including the recovery of Holly and all kinds of items of evidence that were found. Was, it told us a story. Mm-hmm. And the story it told us is that the killer likely lived directly or just off the route that she was walking after she took her little friend home. Mm-hmm. And um, so we focused heavily on that route and any, any male that was capable of committing such an act. So that uh, caused quite an investigation. And we, we got a lucky break. We got a DNA sample early in the investigation. And 
And we knew that potentially it was just a matter of time if we kept asking for consent DNA samples from everybody we spoke to that sooner or later we might get a hit. Yeah. And as I recall, because I remember going door to door watching you guys, it was, I think those number was five. There were five people that didn't give a DNA sample and they were the people that came on your radar. Yeah, my recollection is about a dozen in total and uh, for various reasons, some of them sort of the civil libertarian argument about right. their rights and so on. But uh, what was interesting is that we, we did a, a check on the sex offender registry and we found 283 registered sex offenders living within a two-kilometer radius of Holly's home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, st- and starkly amazing was that every single one of them, it took us some time to find them because they weren't living where they were supposed to live, but when we did find them, each and every one of them consented to a DNA sample because they said we want nothing to do with this investigation except you to move on from us. Right. But there were some really interesting responses, including Michael Breer. He's, yeah. he's one of the people that raised his hand, if you will, in the investigation, said, no, you're not getting my DNA. And he gave some really absurd and bizarre reasons for, for why not, which signaled us we should pay attention to him and the others on the list. And it was quite an exhaustive search. But eventually, when we finally got that magical cast-off sample in a public place, uh, we were able to draw you know, a conclusion that it was definitely Michael Breer responsible for the murder. The the from the moment Maria stood in front of those cameras, uh, you know, begging. I remember it, it, she begged, begged, begged. I mean, you guys were working against the clock because stranger abductions. It's all about time. You've got to get on it. But even by then, Holly was gone, uh, and I remember that heartbreak and the desperation. Take me back as a cop because you're also a parent of what it was like to be in that big of an investigation. The city completely. Uh, watching every move, scared um, and desperate to also see that this little girl gets home. What was it like to be in there knowing that you had to find this and also deal with emotional and dealing with this very, you know, this family that's dealing with the unimaginable? Yeah, and you can't help but make those connections to your own family. And as a matter of fact, my daughter's aged with Holly and uh, my my baby, we mm-hmm. still call her that today, <laughs> aged, aged with Holly. And, uh, and quite frankly, even had some starking similarities in part, as far as the way they looked. So it was heart-wrenching. It, um, I think I said in the, in the documentary that it, it's left a, a scar in my soul that I'll never leave, and, and it impacts you in the most significant way. So, you know, you're dealing with all the emotion, and then you're, you're dealing with the intensity of the focus that it requires to, to actually catch a killer like this, and, and at the same time to make sure that you're treating the family with all the due care that they deserve and, and the kindness and the support and so on. And you've got hundreds of police officers pouring out of every police station, including headquarters, coming down after work and volunteering yeah. time. And it's just a massive operation. We worked for 40 days straight, uh, 16, 17 hours a day, and that was an entire team of investigators. It was, for me, the most uh, difficult and challenging, but obviously the most memorable case I've ever worked on because of its, you know, just the horrific nature of what we were dealing with. And, uh, you know, I can tell you, Alex, I was the one that had to... Yeah initially identify her and using a picture and, and uh, without being too graphic, using, you know, her various body parts to identify her. And, and uh, that was probably something that I will never forget and, quite frankly, probably will never completely get over. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's it, it's the part that the, we don't talk about that. You know, we talk about the stuff, the sanitized stuff that we can report and what people can hear, but it is so much worse than I think people imagine. But how are her parents? I mean... You know, after the cameras go away and the investigation's over and Michael Breer is sent to jail because he ended up pleading out, I mean, yeah. they had to go on with their lives. And, and as I understand, they still live in that same home. They're still in that same area. They must be reminded daily. Absolutely. And um, 
unfortunately, I dealt with an awful lot of child homicides in my years, and uh, they are the most difficult. And well, we also had the Cecilia Jean case that didn't happen, uh, you know, too long after that. We had a series of like these very high-profile children murders that were just terrible. Yeah, they were, and unfortunately, I got stuck with both. So yeah. Cecilia was actually my yeah. last case before I retired. So. Yeah, to watch the parents go through it is—it's just heart-wrenching. To, you know, you take on some of their grief, and and uh, it sickens you to to see the pain on their face and and know that somebody has caused this for no good reason. And and but I'll tell you one thing: it does. It it motivates the hell out of you. I can remember getting home very late uh, the first day that we worked on the Holly case in the middle of the night, and I remember waking up with uh, night terrors and sweats and uh, horrible dreams about what we had dealt with that day. And I'll tell you, all it did was force me to be more motivated to get up uh, after a couple hours sleep and go catch the person responsible. So, you know, you take some uh, some solace from, from that energy and you, you try and put what you saw that day at least partially behind you and focus very clearly on what you got to do. And that's the to catch the person, you got to remember, and I, I know you were there, Alex, uh, every night we went home, we were terrified that uh, whoever this unknown killer at the time was was going to strike again yeah. and, and grab another child. And the entire city was gripped in that fear. It was a very, very intense time in the, in the city of Toronto. It was also a different time. We didn't have the 24-7 news cycle. It was just a different time, a much, I think much more innocent time, if you can say that. Uh, then, you know, people are kind of, they're used to hearing about these terrible incidents uh, now. We've yeah. kind of become uh, acclimatized to them. And, and that was a different time. But, and, and I know you wouldn't have told me at the time, uh, and I would have wanted to ask as a reporter, when you arrested Michael Breer, did he ever apologize? I mean, did he ever acknowledge what he had done? What was that moment like when you slapped those cuffs on him and you knew you got your guy? That was uh, the best moment you could possibly imagine. Uh, Al and I waited for him as he did his daily walk at about 6.30 in the morning to the subway station. and The, the streets were empty except for about 21 surveillance investigators covering him and covering us. And we, we, we just got out of the car and shook his hand and said, you remember us? And, well, now we've got some important news for you under arrest. And I remember driving him into the police station, and it was such a beautiful, sunny June morning, and thinking I wanted to say it to him. I, I wanted to say to him, have a good look at this uh, sunrise, because it's the last one you're ever going to see. But, of course, you have to keep on the professional face and get into what I knew was going to be an interview where I wasn't leaving the room until I got a full confession. And, and I will tell you this, Alex, uh, in all the years I've been doing interviews, including up to today, I've never had anybody, when he finally broke, give such a graphic and detailed confession. Once he started talking, we, we just let the recording run, and he talked for hours, and he never left out a single detail of, of what he did. Do, by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm almost scared to ask, after all the headlines we've heard about, you know, Rafferty and McClintock and all this. Do you know where he is today? Is he still is he still where he should be, me and Max? Yeah, he's still where he should be. And uh, and I did check on him recently, and uh, he's out in British Columbia in maximum security. He is in Max. Okay, well, there you go. At least he is where he should be. Uh, but fascinating story. This airs when? This airs on Thursday, March the 14th. I hope uh, that when people watch it, they'll they'll take it in the, in the proper spirit, that it's, uh, it, it's truly about... Uh, honoring her life and remembering her and, you know, paying some homage to, you know, it, it might look like Al Coleman and I are the yeah. ones who are getting the focus here, but what an amazing group of people, what an amazing team of people that came together to to do this. Uh, people poured their souls into this. We refused to go yeah. home, refused to take days off. I had to order people to, to take a day off in the investigation. And uh, 
at least at the end, we can we can say that uh, you know we were successful in catching him, and especially catching him before he he committed another offense. Yeah, uh, a terrible case, but uh, you know it's good that we we look back on it. Dave, thanks so much for uh, for joining us, and um, that's on March fourteenth, and we will uh, we'll watch. Thanks. Okay, anytime, Alex. That's Dave Perry. Uh, that's the case I I, rem- I met I met Dave Perry on. Uh, it was a much different time, and then of course Cecilia Jean did not happen that that long after. It was just one of these terrible, terrible sequences and series of events, really rocked the city.